The last time that prices in the U.S. jumped this much, Diet Coke was a brand new soda. The lead starts right now. Those trucker protests of COVID restrictions currently blocking several border crossings in Canada could be popping up in the U.S. in just days. What might that mean for the American economy? Missing minutes. The committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol says there's a gap in Donald Trump's phone records as the violence unfolded. What might Trump be hiding? And if you're doing any home construction, you already know lumber is shockingly expensive, as much as 75% higher than normal. Why it's not just Biden, it's Beatles you can blame. Welcome to the Lean Object Tapper. Today we start with the money lead that trucker protest in Canada over COVID vaccine mandates is making the existing supply chain problems in the U.S. ever worse. The clogged border crossings are created scenes, creating scenes like this one. Look at that, a three-hour wait to get into the U.S. Several auto plants in Michigan are now stopping production and reducing work hours because of these protests. Michigan's governor, Democrat Gretchen Whitmer, today calling on the Canadian government to unblock the Ambassador Bridge. That's the busiest land border crossing in North America. Whitmer saying, quote, the blockade is having a significant impact on Michigan's working families who are just trying to do their jobs. And Whitmer is hardly alone. Several border state governors are worried that the protests could have a serious impact on their state's economy. Some Democrats are saying that these protests appear to have caught the Biden administration flat-footed. And now the U.S. Department of Homeland Security is warning similar protests might disrupt the Super Bowl in Los Angeles this weekend. CNN's Miguel Marquez lays out the potential financial ripple effect. Some protesters blocking this major trade corridor between the U.S. and Canada say they'll risk their lives to stay out here. Three nights already, no sign of quitting. You would risk your life rather than leave this protest at the moment? 100%. Absolutely 100%. Protests now starting to bite deeply into the economy. Supply chain bottlenecks. Trucks backed up for hours across this bridge at Port Huron. Automakers and part suppliers on both sides of the border starting to slow or altogether suspend production. Windsor's mayor says while Canadians have the right to protest, patience for what he calls an illegal blockade is running thin. There will have to be a path forward. If that means physically removing them, then that means physically removing them, and we're prepared to do that. Protesters here want all Canadian coronavirus restrictions and mandates at the national level lifted before they say they'll leave. I'm fighting like our veterans did for the freedom of this country, which Trudeau's taking away from us. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau now a target over too many rules. The Prime Minister so far not budging. Individuals are trying to blockade our economy, our democracy, and our fellow citizens' daily lives. It has to stop. Michigan's governor demanding that the border crossing be reopened, calling the blockade unacceptable. Anti-mandate anger simmering for weeks, starting with opposition to vaccine mandates, even though government statistics show more than 80% of Canada's truckers are vaccinated. Some provinces, such as Saskatchewan and Quebec, have recently announced plans to roll back COVID restrictions. But for those who believe the government has robbed them of their livelihoods, they say it's not enough. 
You want the entire country? Uh, uh, not only do I want the provincial ones, I want the national ones done. And I would like to see something where they can't happen again. If we can get the restrictions gone, this little bit of a disruption in our day today for the next week or two, whatever it takes, they'll thank us for it. So I want to give you a sense of how these protests are going every day here uh, in Windsor. The crowd really grows during the day. You probably have several hundred people out here right now at night. Most people leave, others go into their cars. But the resources are coming in, both here and Windsor. And the prime minister today is saying that he is sending more resources, police resources, to other protests in other parts of the country. Clearly, patients across Canada are running out. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. These supply chain worries come as we learn inflation is near a 40-year high, climbing 7.5% in just 12 months. We learned today from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's the steepest rise since 1982. President Biden today acknowledging that inflation is putting stress on Americans' budgets. It's also a huge political liability for President Biden. A new CNN poll today shows that nearly 6 in 10 Americans disapprove of Biden's performance as president. Much of that is driven by his handling of the economy. 62% of Americans disapprove of Biden's handling of the economy, while 37% approve. CNN's Vanessa Yurkevich now looks into the growing sticker shock on everything from cars to your grocery bills. You see it at checkout. Seemingly everything is more expensive. The benchmark for prices, the Consumer Price Index, up 0.6% in January and 7.5% in the last 12 months. The highest jump in nearly 40 years. This is a challenge that is first and foremost in our sites. We have way more work to do. Big increases in cars, groceries and electricity year over year. And food up nearly 1% in January, a huge spike from December. It's a constant rejuggling of budgets to try to keep up with the food prices lately. Gas did drop by 0.8% last month. But with oil prices rising, that likely won't last. And filling up your car costs 40% more than it did a year ago. I used to buy about $20 for a day, but I'm buying about $35. And for the same amount? Yes, for the same quantity. Last month, new all-time price records, trucks, seafood, meals and furniture, saw the highest jumps ever year over year. And used cars up a whopping 40.5% in the last 12 months. This because of supply chain shortages, particularly the elusive semiconductor computer chip, which means fewer new cars on the market. We've seen anywhere from zero cars in our lot, new cars now, zero new cars in our lot to having you know, as many as 9, 10, 12. And now truckers blocking a key trading route between the U.S. and Canada, cutting production at some General Motors and Ford plants, which could lead to even higher prices. We can't have a situation where families don't get food to their table. And while the cost of shelter climbed less than it did in December, it's up 4.4 percent since last year. It's the largest share of monthly expense for Americans. What is unique in the current cycle is that we have this exceptional housing shortage, not enough homes for sale, not enough apartments available for leasing, and consequently, the housing cost is rising uh, and possibly accelerating further in the upcoming months. 
Inflation is not cooling down. This is where the Federal Reserve steps in. Their single greatest tool to lower consumer prices is to cool demand by raising interest rates, which they signaled would start in March. On a car, it's going to be a little more difficult to cool that down only because of lack of supply and, again, the huge demand right now. Some good economic news. GDP is up, unemployment is low, and wages are rising. But it's not keeping up with the rising inflation that we are seeing. Moody's Analytics estimates that U.S. households are spending on average $250 more every month. So everyday consumers, Jake, they don't feel things like GDP. They feel what's happening with their wallets. That's why these rising prices on everyday items is causing many Americans to still sour on the economy. Jake. All right, Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thanks so much. Let's bring in Rana Faruhar. She's a CNN global economic analyst and associate editor at the Financial Times. Also, of course, Richard Quest, the CNN business editor at large. Richard, first to you, let's look again at some of these price spikes at all-time highs. Furniture, new cars, Mm -hmm. appliances, restaurant meals, not to mention just the sticker shock on other items such as used cars, up 41%, gasoline up 40%, electricity up almost 11% year-to-year. We've watched these prices going up for months. What seems to be driving this? Two factors. Firstly, the supply chain that we talked about and we've talked, you and I have talked about. Basically, the crunch from China to here. The not enough containers, not enough ships, not enough ports. Vastly increased demand because people working from home. And, and don't forget, those who weren't laid off have got disposable income to spend. So people, the consumer is very busy. And that's the other side. This is Economics 101. That You know, the oldest rule, uh, when demand chases supply, prices go up. And that's what you're seeing. Consumers with money buying more stuff. Supplies can't get it to you. And you have this depressing cycle, this spiral that just goes on. And I'll tell you why it's particularly worrying, because eventually this feeds through to wages. People naturally, Jake, want more higher wages because they're paying more for everything. Then the Fed comes in, puts interest rates up and it all continues. So, Rana, there's another there's another factor I'm wondering about. Uh, 3M is the company that makes N95 face masks in addition to adhesives and all sorts of office supplies. According to a transcript of their earnings call uh, in January, company executives applauded their own company for raising prices. Uh, The CFO saying, quote, the team has done a marvelous job in driving price. Um, Obviously, uh, what Richard said is accurate in terms of issues, but I'm also wondering how much prices are going up because of corporate greed and, and companies and CFOs and CEOs taking advantage of this moment. Well, you know, it's a great question, and it's a question that the Biden administration has been asking. You know, you've seen in recent weeks the White House saying um, that there is uh, too much concentration of power in various industries, that companies have gotten too big, that they do have too much power over the economy. And that's something that I think that you're going to see continue as inflation continues throughout the rest of the year. Um, But, you know, Jake, there's also another factor that's important, and that's politics. You know, the the blockade that you're seeing um, at the Canadian border is, I think, indicative of what we're going to see going forward. Richard mentioned uh, supply chain issues with China. Some of those are about COVID, but some of them are about a fundamental decoupling that is happening in the world now. It's not going to be smooth sailing the way it has for the last 20 years. I think we're entering a period where political conflict is going to play a part in keeping prices higher. And Rana, we saw sharp spikes in the 70s and 80s when inflation was hovering around 15 percent. But you you say we're in a completely different economic scenario now. Yeah, I mean, the 70s has um, 
some something to do with today in the sense that that's the last time that we saw inflation this high. You had, um, you know, the central banks coming in and having to really kick rates up, which, of course, sent the economy into a tailspin. Um, we don't want to see that now. Uh, we certainly don't want to see it. The Biden administration doesn't want to see it before the midterms. Um, but I think that the factors in play now are much more complicated than they were in the 70s. Um, I think that COVID just threw a spammer in everything because it created this sort of bullwhip effect where you get delays in one country, China, let's say, and then you feel them months later in Europe and the U.S. So it's going to be very volatile for the next few months. Richard, the trucker protests in Canada, how, how disruptive do you think they're going to be to the oh, U.S. supply chain? Enormously. Absolutely. Remember, these are companies that built their supply chain on just-in-time, close distribution, mm. easy access, and now you've literally stopped that. I think, I, I'd never, I, I think the issue here is we are about to go into a... Uh, an economic scenario that, uh, pardon the phrase, only old fools like me probably remember uh, back in the (laughs) 1970s and 80s, where there's an entire generation that's got no idea of what a full interest rate cycle looks like, where you have rate up, rate up, rate up, rate up. Gosh, we're not going to get to eight, nine percent in rates, but we get to four, five, maybe five percent interest rates for a a, a period of time. And it becomes more difficult and borrowing becomes more difficult. I I don't want to be depressing, but we are moving into a new environment as the Fed shows its teeth and starts to take a bite out of inflation. Richard Quest, Rana Faruhar, thanks so much. Switching to our politics lead now in a day of terrible numbers. For President Biden, inflation and the brand new CNN poll showing six in 10 Americans disapproving of his job as president. Mr. Biden is hoping to pivot to a more positive and familiar topic. Any minute he is set to meet with members of the Senate Judiciary Committee to talk about his next Supreme Court nominee. Joining us now is the chairman of that committee, Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois. He's also the Senate Majority Whip. Mr. Chairman, good to see you. President Biden was on the Judiciary Committee when he was a senator. Uh, He was chair as well. This morning, his chief of staff, Ron Klain, made a made it a point to say how excited Biden was for this meeting with you and your committee. Uh, Do you have a specific suggestion of who you would like, whom rather, you would like him to pick? No, I'm not going to be giving a plus or minus to any nominee. That's the president's job. He has a good list, and I'm sure it's more expansive than the public even knows. I just hope he does his job, does it well, and does it quickly. We're anxious to get started in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Your committee has been sparring over the tone of questions directed at judicial nominees of color. Today, Democratic committee member Senator Alex Padilla of California called Republican lines of questioning, quote, demeaning, offensive and just plain wrong. Utah Republican Senator Mike Lee said the insinuations of racial bias against Republicans on the committee were, quote, the very sort of comment that would incite people to anger, acts of retaliation and violence, unquote. Are are you worried at all that this is a preview for the nomination hearing for the next Supreme Court nominee, who we know will be a, a woman of color? Jake, I'm just a bridge over troubled waters, trying to make sure that both Republicans and Democrats work together. Uh, there are moments of uh, stress and tension in the committee, but this is an historic responsibility, and I hope we can comport ourselves uh, professionally and show respect for whoever the nominee will be. Do you agree that some of the Republicans on the committee have been using code words. Uh, There was one reference to somebody having a rap sheet, an African-American nominee. The rap sheet was some parking tickets from several years ago. Uh, What's your take on all this? Uh, That was an unfortunate uh, reference. Uh, It wasn't a rap sheet as we uh, characteristically know it. 
but I'm going to put that behind us. We've got to look forward. Uh, the nominee coming will be an African-American woman, as the president has promised the America. Uh, I believe that she will be well qualified. I'm anxious to find out the details about her professional life, but I'll guarantee you this. She will not have reached this stage in life without breaking records and showing some remarkable achievements. Uh, so I, I'm sure it's going to be a good nominee. Republicans such as Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina have been vocally backing Judge Childs from South Carolina. Uh, How much do you think bipartisan support should weigh in on President Biden's decision? Well, I'm sure it'll be part of it, but uh, Judge Childs was being considered for a circuit court position uh, in the federal judiciary even before this vacancy. So she is an extraordinary person herself. Lindsey's a good politician. He's playing to the home base. Uh, and I believe he has picked a person of good quality. I think Judge uh, that Senator Scott is going to join him in that selection. But the bottom line is the president has to take into consideration this is an historic choice. It goes beyond this, uh, this Senate and uh, the, his term in office. And, and the person he chooses has to serve our nation for a long time to come. Let's talk about inflation now because it's at a 40-year high, and I'm sure you're hearing uh, a lot from your constituents about it. Your Democratic colleague, Senator Joe Manchin, told the West Virginia radio show that the problem of inflation is, quote, self-inflicted, in his view, because of Democrats' massive spending packages. He says while Biden's social spending plan is well-intentioned, the United States is not in a financial place to take it on. Uh, It sounds like Manchin doesn't think Democrats are going to fare well in the midterms if inflation isn't under control soon. Listen, inflation is a problem for families, it's a problem for our nation, and it's a political problem on top of all that. We see it every time we drive past the uh, filling station and look at the price of a gallon of gas, for example. Uh, It's a real challenge. The combination of this inflation with the pandemic is really weighing heavily on the American population. I hope we turn the corner soon when it comes to inflation, and I hope we turn it as well when it comes to putting the Omicron variant behind us. Uh, when we do, I think there are good times ahead. There are positive indicators coming out of this economy. For example, the number of people seeking jobs uh, to, and the level of economic activity and the growth of our economy are all positive things. We've got to get past this inflationary challenge. There's a new CNN poll today with not great news for President Biden and the Democrats in terms of job approval. Strikingly, 56 percent of respondents in our poll uh, who disapprove of Biden's job say he made, has made zero moves that they approve of. Zero. Not on coronavirus, not on the economy, not even on getting a cat. Uh, do you think President Biden is doing everything he can to reach these voters? Listen, Jake, we're in the doldrums at this point, and I think it, it re- really all relates back to that uh, inflation situation together with the pandemic. I believe we're going to come through and there'll be some sunshine on the other side. Uh, it basically is going to take some time, but we're moving in the right direction. The fundamentals of this economy, but for inflation, and that's a big uh, exception, are really positive. Senator Dick Durbin from the land of Lincoln. Thanks so much, sir. Good to see you. Have a good meeting at the White House. Thanks, Jake. Who was on the phone? That's the question the January 6th committee is trying to find out now that we know there's a huge gap in Trump's phone records from that day. And a look at why climate change is making it much more expensive to build homes. That's next. In our politics lead, several hours of mystery. Congressional investigators are stumped, and as of now, stonewalled. They're trying to figure out exactly what then-President Trump was saying and doing behind the scenes on January 6, 2021, specifically when the violent mob was spiraling out of control on Capitol Hill. At issue is a giant gap in knowledge from the end of Trump's rally to the moment that Trump sent that video telling his supporters 
to go home. Let's get right to CNN's Jamie Gangellan. Jamie, uh, congressional investigators have some phone records, but apparently they don't have a record of calls made to or from Trump during a a specific period. How long is the gap and what might it mean? It it appears the gap is at least three hours, maybe longer than that. What's notable, as you said, is it's while the riot is going on. There is no suggestion that someone tampered with the White House official record. So what, what could be the explanation? Donald Trump was known to like to use a personal cell phone. So if he used a personal cell phone, that wouldn't be in the records. He also used AIDS phone, particularly Dan Scavino, who was there, or his personal aide, Nick Luna. Maybe he was using their phones. Maybe he just didn't talk to too many people. Maybe he was so transfixed watching that television, hitting rewind. It's also possible there are more documents coming from the National Archives, Jake. Uh, a source familiar with the investigation told me the committee has not drawn any final conclusions based on this gap, but it does raise the question, is there a possibility they will revisit the issue of whether or not to subpoena Donald Trump's personal phone records? Well, that, and that's, you know, what, what is the right. chance that's going to happen? I'm going to, for the moment, uh, right. avoid pointing out that Donald Trump uh, won in 2016, going after Hillary Clinton, not abiding by uh, protocols when it comes to phone records or email servers in, the, in her instance. But beyond that, are, is there the willingness on the committee to do that? They have been reticent thus far. But to your point, this wasn't a secret to Donald Trump. He campaigned on it with Hillary Clinton. I think the issue here is it's not just that Donald Trump was likely using a personal cell phone. It's that the people around him were using personal cell phones that are not on these logs. A former White House official said to me, I said, why did they let him get away with this? He said, Donald Trump did not think the rules applied to him, and he, that passed to the staff. Mm. So I think the committee hasn't wanted to go there, but if they see a reason to do it, I, I don't think it's ruled out. All right, Jamie Gingell, thank you so much. Sure. Appreciate it. Given all of Trump's big lie rhetoric, the big question now, do Americans still have faith in the election process? New CNN poll results on that. That's next. Breaking right now, new CNN polls on how Americans feel about the state of American democracy and whether they trust the election systems. The results are concerning. Let's get right to CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton. And and Harry, CNN's been asking this question, how confident are you that elections in America today reflect the will of the people since last year? How has that number evolved over the past few months? You know, you said concerning. I would argue depressing. Uh, you know, we essentially asked, you know, how confident are you that, you know, these elections will reflect the will of the people? And if you look back in 2021, at, in January, what you saw was a majority said that they were confident that elections reflected the will of the people. 59 percent. But that dropped to 48 percent in September of 2021. And now it's just 44 percent who say yes. The majority now say no at 56 percent. So very depressing. But I think what's also interesting is the groups that have changed. So I don't think it's that much of a surprise that Republicans uh, feel that elections don't reflect the will of the people. And that's exactly what our poll has shown. Uh, But compare that to back in January of 2021. You can see that Republicans have stayed the same, not confident that U.S. elections reflect the will of the people at 74 percent. But Democrats and Democratic leaners 
only 13% in January of 2021 said that they were not confident that elections reflected the will of the people. That has jumped 20 points to 33%. So now it's not just the majority of Republicans that are not confident. It's a substantial portion of Democrats who are not confident as well. Right. Well, two things have happened since then. Uh, there have been a number of efforts by states to to make it tougher to vote. And two, you've had a lot of Democrat politicians, Democratic politicians saying uh, that, you know, this is the new Jim Crow era. A lot of Democrats uh, bad-mouthing uh, elections in addition to those new restrictive laws. What role, though, do you think January 6th has in the public sentiment? Will the committee investigating the insurrection, will it help or, or will it hurt this problem? I, I think it might help a little bit, right? You know, essentially, you know, if you ask folks how they feel about the January 6th commit, commission, committee, is it going to be a fair, uh, essentially, hearing? Uh, what we do see is that the plurality do, in fact, say, yes, it's going to be a fair investigation, 44%. But look, 36% say it's really just a one-sided effort to blame Trump. And then there's that key 20% who basically say they haven't heard enough. So there are a lot of folks out there who really aren't really paying so much attention to a lot of this stuff. And I think if you also essentially look at how people think that the committee and their findings may in fact help, will it help sort of strengthen democracy? What we see in our poll is that only 37 percent say it's likely that the select committee will help to protect American democracy. The vast, the clear majority either believe, no, it will not help, or 13 percent say January 6th, not a problem. I don't really know who those folks are, but they're out there. Half the country believes that American democracy is under attack, uh, American democracy. Who, who exactly are these people? People like me, people like me who are young. Uh, my, fo my folks in my generation just don't get it. If you look at our poll, there is just such a large age gap here. Who believe democracy is under attack? Just 31 percent of those aged 18 to 34. I don't know where you are in this graphic, Jake, but I will say that folks like my mother, 77 percent aged 65 and over believe that democracy is under attack. This is about as large of an age gap as I've seen on any particular issue. And also, I think this is really interesting. If you ask folks whether or not they believe democracy is under attack and you go essentially by whether or not they think that the 2020 election was legitimate, 69 percent of those who thought that Biden's win was not legitimate, they believe that democracy is under attack. Just 42 percent of those who think Biden legitimately won believe democracy is under attack. And I think that really just sort of goes against the grain because you would think that those who believe that Biden was legitimately legitimately won and you saw the January 6th attack and you hear all this rhetoric, you'd think those are the folks who are most concerned. It's actually the other folks who are most concerned. All right, Harry Anson, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, a we'll look you, at sir. one thing the United States got really wrong about that pandemic, something that could haunt health officials in the future. Stay with us. In our Health League today, as we near the end of the Omicron wave, we hope, and officials begin to lift mask mandates and other restrictions, a brand new CNN analysis shows that the COVID data relied upon by public health officials to make decisions is faulty. And it has been that way from the beginning of the pandemic. Let's discuss this with CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, lay this out for us, Sanjay. What is it? How concerning is it? Well, this has been, you know, a challenge, I think, as reporters trying to report on what is happening with the pandemic, because the data has been so hard to sort of parse through. And we have an incredible team of producers who've been doing that. But part of the challenge really has been, besides the fact that we haven't had enough testing, the original sin, as you and I have talked about, really the, the lack of sort of national leadership. 
So many states uh, were sort of, uh, you know, reporting this data. There wasn't necessarily a federal clearinghouse to really look at that data. That made it really challenging. I mean, you know, when kids started getting vaccinated between the ages of 5 and 11, it took a month for the dashboard to be updated. Inefficient data systems. There could be six steps between the states and the feds to determine if something was uh, somebody actually had died a COVID death and to have that reported. And then just significant inconsistencies overall, Jake. Uh, Some examples, um, if a single individual came back positive several times, was that three separate positives or was that one positive? Sounds like a simple question, right? But states handled that sort of thing differently. States, uh, you know, did not always parse out PCR versus antigen testing. So, you know, we as, as reporters had to constantly be looking at this data ourselves and try and make sense of it because the data was not forthcoming. And, you know, so many decisions were getting made on that faulty data as well. And that was, I think, a real frustration that has continued. So considering all those inefficiencies and all the questions about the reliability of the data, it is now the right time for all these states to, to lift their mask mandates and, and ease restrictions. Well, I mean, it's part of the issue. I mean, you know, we're flying blind a little bit when it comes to many of these different metrics. I mean, you know, we know that the the numbers are still very high, but they're coming down. Uh, We know that if you look at the CDC projections, 61,000 people are still sadly expected to die over the next uh, four weeks, Jake. I mean, these these are astounding numbers still. But at the same time, the, the numbers seem to be coming down. I think that's why hospitalization data has been, in some ways, the truest data. It's, it's much more countable, although even that, you know, in some states they were counting with COVID, for COVID, uh, with COVID as opposed to um, uh, diagnosed with COVID after they got into the hospital. So it, it, was, it was all these different sort of metrics that make it difficult. I think what we're seeing now in the United States is with the numbers coming down, people are trying to project when are they going to be at a point where hospitalizations are not going to be so high and hospitals aren't overwhelmed? But we're also looking to places like Denmark. Denmark sort of basically lifted restrictions on February 1st. It's, it's a, a good example maybe of what might happen here, hospitalizations and deaths sort of creeping up again. I hope that doesn't happen here, but you also got to keep in mind Denmark, 80% roughly of the population vaccinated were close, closer to the mid-60s. According to a new CNN poll, uh, Sanjay, Americans overall are, are quite divided over what they think is the best approach for the country to take on the pandemic going forward. 51% say it's time to learn to live with the virus. 48% say the highest priority should be stopping the spread of the virus. Um, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, it, it won't surprise you that the, the answer is really a combination of both those things. I mean, I think what surprised me was just how how starkly it divided along political lines as well. I mean, there hasn't been anything during this pandemic that you could disentangle from politics. But when it comes to this particular issue, look at that. 73% of Democrats stopping the spread should remain the highest priority. 72% of Republicans, time to learn to live with the virus. But both things can be true. I mean, we still need to slow down the spread considering we're close to 100,000 people in the hospital still, and there's still a lot of virus spreading. But I think it's pretty clear, and it has been really since you know, spring of 2020, that this virus was was here to stay. So we do have to learn to live with it. The question is, what are we willing to accept? Right now, Jake, I know if you look at people who have young children, people who have children who cannot be vaccinated, people who have someone in their household who's immune compromised, 
a significant issue. Healthcare workers, they really are still focused on trying to slow the spread of this because they see what's happening and what is possible in terms of uh, the impact of that spread. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Coming up, why beetles may be one of the reasons behind soaring lumber prices. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series today, skyrocketing housing prices are not just due to supply chain issues or a shortage of homes for sale. Climate change is also to blame. Years of devastating wildfires and destructive insects are leveling forests worldwide, wreaking havoc on the timber and lumber needed to build homes. But as CNN's Bill Weir shows us now, there might be a solution. If the definition of inflation is too many dollars chasing not enough goods, Well, this is what happens when too many houses chase not enough wood. How would you characterize the price of lumber today? Volatile. Yeah, it is up and down. It got to the point where we were just adding 20 to 30% just because, and hopefully that will cover it. It's all they can talk about at the National Association of Home Builders Convention in Orlando this week, starting with a sticker poll. Down here is one person who said it's been by 75%. At a normal time, if the cost of a building material were to increase by 75%, people would be coming on glued. But look what it is. Most of them are 200% or more. Right. There are a few reasons why, but the problem begins in the Canadian Rockies. The source of almost one in every three boards hammered into American homes and where a plague of beetles arrived with the power to kill 100,000 trees a day. So many, you could hear them over the phone. And you could actually hear the beetles underneath the bark. He says, I'm listening to my trees being killed. Oh, my God. Forest biologist Janice Cook has studied the invasion of mountain pine beetles for decades, just one effect of an overheating planet. Warmer overwinters and um, hotter, drier summers, we saw those populations not only rise to epidemic levels, but in some areas, what we call a hyperepidemic. Mountain pine beetles attack a single tree like an invading army, and to defend itself, the lodgepole pine fills its cracks with this sticky chemical compound we know as pitch. Well, this turns out to be highly flammable. So in the end, if the beetles win, you've got a 50-foot fire starter. Beetle Kill Forest helped accelerate those western megafires. And altogether, 50 million acres have been lost up here, an area the size of Minnesota. We have more than 30 mill closures in the interior of BC alone. Mills are not running 24-7 anymore. In the meantime, there is the 40-year-old trade war with the United States, and based on an old formula, tariffs on Canadian wood automatically doubled recently. Joe Biden could dial those back, but like Canada, he's also protecting more federal trees, especially the old growth stands in places like Tongass National Forest. The Biden administration uh, has cut back on the harvesting of timber on our federal lands uh, for environmental purposes. And so we need more lumber from outside. The Biden administration um, it has not gone to the table to negotiate a long-term deal with Canada. So once again, we've got to look somewhere else. In fact, we've opened up discussions uh, with the German government about bringing in more from Germany. And more builders like John Riddle in Winter Park, Florida, are finding lumber alternatives. By injecting these stackable foam molds with concrete, 
He says he creates walls 50% more energy efficient and 100% more fireproof. This seems to me, as, as we watch zoning regulations change in California due to wildfires, yeah, yeah. like an amazing solution. Yeah, that doesn't burn. Right. Concrete won't burn. Right. Yeah. Now, in my mind, there's no reason why this is not more prevalent in our country. Why do you think it isn't? You know, builders like to do what they always do. But the housing crisis is growing at the same time as the climate crisis. When science says we need all the mature forests we can possibly save. This is the business case for considering our forests and our trees in our forests for their entire ecosystem services and not just the price of a two by four. And that's the thing, that's the rub these days. Just as the planet runs out of resources, demand is skyrocketing right now, Jake, and President Biden could you know, work with five or 10% on these new tariffs. Donald Trump did the same thing, but long-term, trees are gonna be even more valuable going forward, and whether it's coffee beans or chocolate or avocados or any other thing that makes life worth living, it looks like we're gonna have to get used to the term climate inflation. All right, Bill Weir with our latest in Earth Matters. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, they've been working nine to five, but thanks to Dolly Parton, they are also getting a chance to go to college. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a Texas-sized problem amidst a huge surge in illegal immigration at the Texas border. Republican Governor Greg Abbott sent a bunch of National Guardsmen to try to help tackle the problem, but now in a CNN investigation... Some of the guardsmen are opening up and even risking their careers, calling Abbott's decision political theater. Plus, forget the trash can. New reports say Donald Trump threw key documents in the toilet. And bad bathroom protocol is the least of the offenses. Now the Justice Department is involved. And breaking news leading this hour just moments ago, NBC released a clip from Lester Holt's pre-Super Bowl interview with President Biden. And the clip focused on Biden's upcoming Supreme Court nomination. Let's get to CNN's MJ Lee, who's live for us at the White House. So MJ, what did President Biden have to say? Well, Jake, we now know that President Biden's search for a Supreme Court nominee uh, is well underway. He just told NBC News uh, that there are a handful of candidates that he has already done a deep dive on. And he also had this to say about the prospects of getting Republican support for his eventual nominee. Take a listen. Can I ask you where you stand right now in your nomination process for it? Supreme Court, um, what your short list looks like, um, or if you want to name the nominee right here, we'd, we'd be happy to hear you. <laughs> well, first of all, the short list are uh, nominees who are incredibly well qualified and documented. They are, they were the, the honor students. They come from the best universities. They have experience, some on the bench, some on the practice. What's the number law. you're at? Four, five, six? Well, what I've done is I've taken about four people and done the deep dive on them, meaning this thorough background checks, <clears throat> and to see uh, if there's anything in the background that would make them not qualified. Is it important that you believe they'll get a vote from the Republican side? Well, I, I think we'll, whomever I pick will get a vote from the Republican side for the following reason. I'm not looking to make an ideological choice here. I'm looking for someone to replace Judge Breyer with the same kind of capacity Judge Breyer had, with an open mind who understands the Constitution, interprets it in a way that is consistent with the mainstream interpretation of the Constitution. 
Now, President Biden returned just a little while ago from a trip to Virginia. And what is next on his agenda for the day is a meeting with some of the Democrats that sit on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And we have seen some of those senators arriving at the White House uh, in the in the last hour or so. Uh, this comment that the president made that he is not looking to make an ideological choice. That seems really key from the soundbite that we just heard. Uh, president Biden has been emphatic basically from the beginning that it is very important to him to consult with Republican senators in this uh, process that he wants to consult with bipartisan members. Uh, we'll see if that ends up being true, that Republicans end up supporting uh, his eventual nominee. But this is a key issue that he has pressed, that he wants this to be a bipartisan process. Jake. All right, MJ Lee at the White House, thank you so much. Also in our politics lead today, a rare use of the U.S. Constitution. Activists in North Carolina are pushing to keep MAGA-supporting, election-denying Congressman Madison Cawthorn from running for re-election to the House because of his alleged role in the January 6th insurrection. As CNN's Sunland Sirfati reports for us now, Cawthorn's lawyer is saying just because his client talked about fighting and bloodshed before, during, and after January 6th does not mean he literally was calling for violence against politicians and police on January 6th. I want you to chant with me so loud that the cowards on Washington, D.C. that I serve with can hear you. A chant that might call an end to running for office. North Carolina's bipartisan election board asserting in this federal court filing that it has the power to potentially disqualify Congressman Madison Cawthorn from running for Congress again over his role in the January 6th insurrection. He wasn't engaged. In that attack, the Republican congressman filed a federal lawsuit this week to try to shut down the constitutional challenge to his candidacy. It's actually the Constitution of the United States that disqualifies Madison Cawthorn from being a candidate for office in 2022. Liberal groups are launching a long shot and unprecedented state level challenge to his candidacy using an obscure Civil War era clause of the 14th Amendment, banning those who engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof from running again. Something that hasn't been used since the Civil War and the Reconstruction era. Cawthorn has denied any wrongdoing in January 6th and his legal team signaling they're ready for this fight. It requires conduct. For, for him to say, I mean, what they say he said at the rally and no other place, he didn't go you know, and pool and join the mob at the Capitol. On January 6th, Cawthorn speaking at the Stop the Steal rally hours before rioters stormed the Capitol. Wow, this crowd has some fight in it. And at 12 o'clock today, we will be contesting the election. Our Constitution was violated. Two days before, he tweeted, January 6th is fast approaching. It's time to fight. And a month before, Cawthorn encouraging his supporters However, to lightly threaten members of Congress. Call your congressman and feel free. You can lightly threaten them. If you don't start supporting election integrity, I'm coming after you. Madison Cawthorn's coming after you. Since coming to Congress last year, Cawthorn has been a lightning rod of controversy. With social media posts showing him visiting Adolf Hitler's vacation home in Germany and referring to him as the Fuhrer at the time saying he was there honoring the Allies' win, not the Nazis. Also questions over his claim he got into the prestigious Naval Academy. CNN obtained a deposition in which Cawthorn admitted that he had been rejected. And allegations of sexual harassment and misconduct by several women when he was a college student, claims he has denied.
And there are a lot of open legal questions about how this provision in the Constitution would apply today. Now, where does this all go next? Well, the state level, the process there is halted for a moment while North Carolina redraws its congressional lines. But Cawthorn's own federal lawsuit, that's what asked the, to shut down the state challenge in North Carolina. That is progressing, and we expect to hear soon from the judge whether they will schedule a hearing or dismiss this case. Jake? It's a fascinating case. Sunland Serfati, thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel. Uh, Maria, let me start with you. This, so this is a bipartisan election board, and they're looking at this, and I'm going to read this again, just the key parts, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. No person shall be a representative in Congress who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. In your view, did Congressman Cawthorn violate that? Yeah. Absolutely. So did Donald Trump, by the way. But uh, yeah, I I absolutely think that that is something that um, legitimately the people who are going after him can claim. Now, whether it's going to work, you know, everyone is sort of pouring cold water on it. It's never been enforced in that way. But I do think, Jake, for Democrats, it's an opportunity to focus on a message that I don't think many Democrats have done enough of. And I hope Going into the midterms, they do the both and in terms of talking about local economies, everything that they need to do. And there's a lot that they need to do there. But also talk about the danger that would be electing a GOP governing majority if this is the type of people that are going to be representing it. And right now it is because who's the head of the GOP? Donald Trump, who called for the insurrection. And people like Cawthorn support him. The RNC just passed that insane resolution that talked about the kinds of activities that Cawthorn was doing on the 6th. They call that legitimate political discourse. I think it's a great opportunity for Democrats to continue to underscore the danger that exists to our democracy. So, Kristen, you're an expert on polling and focus groups and voters. And I'm wondering, just as a pure practical level for Democrats... Not morality, not ethics, not what should be. As a pure political matter, is talking about the insurrection, is talking about possible violations of the 14th Amendment, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the erosion of democracy, is that a winning issue, do you think? I don't think it is. And I think in part because the number one issue so clearly in poll after poll is the economy, cost of living, secondary to that, things like how are you handling COVID, issues like immigration. For a lot of voters... They don't like what happened on January 6th at all. But it also feels like folks want to look backwards instead of the voters who want to look forwards. And Democrats, I think, got caught in this trap in Virginia by trying to focus so much on Donald Trump. And isn't he extreme? And do you want to put this party in power? And voters said, but Glenn Youngkin's going to cut my grocery tax and give me as a parent more voice. I think the other problem with what's happening in North Carolina is if you're a Republican, now that nonpartisan, bipartisan election board you can say, look, they really are biased against us. And I think if you are somebody who worries about claims that these bipartisan or nonpartisan election boards are doing their job, this is just pouring gasoline on the fire of any potential you know, Republican challenge to what's going on in, in North Carolina. There is a question, though, how much um, that this insurrection thing is baked into the Republican Party right now. And, and so there's a very interesting story. Today, Virginia's deputy attorney general, Monique Miles, resigned after the Washington Post found Facebook posts of her praising the January 6th rioters and claiming Trump won the 2020 election. Here's one of the posts. Uh, Quote, uh, newsflash, patriots have stormed the Capitol. No surprise, the deep state has awoken the sleeping giant. Patriots are not taking this lying down. We are awake, ready, and will fight for our rights by any 
means necessary. And just to underline the point, this was supposed to be a top deputy of the Virginia AG's <laughs> office who would oversee election issues for Virginia's new Republican attorney general. There, there's so much that has been out in the open and public when it comes to um, members of Congress, when it comes to some of the politicians we see day to day, when it comes to their words in the days before January 6th and on January 6th and in the days after, including whitewashing it. But the trickle down effect as well of the local official of the local officials, um, you know, social media posts that they might have post, like in this case, that will be uncovered and how many more will be uncovered. That will be something to watch. I mean, it's worth mentioning again, you know, I cover the White House, I cover this administration, and the false narratives and how they are continue to be amplified around that day, as well as the presidential election and the trickle-down effect of how that can reach people on the ground, that continues to be a top concern, not just for the White House, but also for national security officials as well. And Jack, we should point out, Monique Miles, um, in a statement to the Washington Post, has since kind of backtracked from the sentiment there. What we're saying, what we know now about the election today is very different from what we knew uh, the day Biden was inaugurated. Um, how much do you... Not so much. <laughs> you know, uh, but I think... Uh, no. Right, no. that's not true. Not, 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 no, that, that, is, that is incorrect. <laughs> However, I will say the difference between what's happening in Virginia versus what's happening in other states is she stepped down. She yeah. resigned. Right. In other states, they're trying to yes. politicize the election boards. They're trying to insert that partisanship. Oh, exactly. They would and run for. She would run for governor. Well, exactly. Ex- exactly. And so that the the opposite is happening. And uh, so I think that that is noteworthy that she was actually asked to resign. Do you think that that is because Virginia is a? Well, let me open this to the group. Is, is yeah. it because it's a, Virginia is a purple state? It's because yes. Glenn Youngkin is trying to be a center right uh, conservative, uh, or? Or, you know, what, what, what's your take? Yes, I actually wouldn't be surprised if Yunkin was the one to be like, hey, you, you got to get out of here. Because, and this is where I'm going to disagree with my friend Kristen, Virginia is, I think, an right now an isolated situation. Glenn Youngkin is not Cawthorn. Cawthorn is not Glenn Youngkin. That's true. I'll agree with you on that. <laughs> you, look, you look across the board and so many of the candidates who are running for office, both for Congress as well as the down-ballot secretaries of state, They are all supporters and purveyors of the big lie and support Donald Trump and said that they would not certify the election. So I do think that in in specific races, and it can't be just underscoring the danger, you're not running against Trump. You're running against MAGA, the big lie, the danger to democracy. What these candidates want to do if they would be in power, they want to destroy our Constitution and take away our democracy. I want to turn to this new revelation from President Biden on his Supreme Court pick. He says he's looking into four people. That's that's a short list now. If you were advising uh, President Biden, you don't like it when I do. <laughs> so if you were, he might be watching. Who knows? Well, if you were if, if you were if you were advising him and you wa- and you wanted him to do something that would help his you know his approval ratings are awful right now. Uh, I don't know that a Supreme Court pick would do that necessarily. How do you how do you factor that in? A Supreme Court pick is more likely to be very contentious than not. But I think it's so interesting that you have, for instance, even Senator Lindsey Graham, even Senator Lindsey Graham sort of championing a pick in Michelle Childs from from the state. And so while I don't know who is on that list, to the extent that somebody can be put forward that even gets a couple of Republican votes, I think that would be a sort of interesting political victory for him, given that he ran on this message of unity and yet. In poll after poll, Americans do not feel like we are more unified than we were 365 days ago. It does feel to me, though, that Supreme Court picks uh, are more often uh, 
pleasing for the base. Mm. And like, even if you pick somebody like Merrick Garland, Obama picked Merrick Garland to be like a moderate pick. That right. didn't help him with conservatives. Right. Or, well, I mean, he wasn't running for re-election, but you know, you see my point. No, I, and look, we have to remember too. You know, the president has already been out there and the White House has been out there making it clear that they are going to choose a black woman as well. Um, It comes at a time of increasing anxiety when you talk to, you know, leaders of advocacy groups that champion voting protections, police reform, that feel that those have been cast aside. So is this maybe something that you can tout and say, look, you know, acknowledging that we have not made progress on those issues that do resonate in these communities. Here's something that, that here's a historic pick as well that could galvanize that. Well, and, and not to take away from the historic pick, because that is something that is definitely worth acknowledging. Um, but I will say on the left, they haven't had the same uh, momentum when it comes to the Supreme Court and running on the Supreme Court. Now, mm-hmm. I would not be surprised if what happens with Roe v. Wade, if it is in fact overturned, if that motivates the base more than perhaps um, who Biden chooses. Thanks so much for being here. Good to see all Thanks, of you. Thanks, Jake. Talk about a document dump. New reporting reveals Donald Trump flushed documents down a White House toilet. Better call the plumber than Nathan Chen, figure skating's new golden boy. But you would not notice, you would not know that if you only watch the Chinese government press. We're going to go behind China's wall next. In the politics lead, uh, former President Trump with a denial today for the ages. He writes, quote, another fake story that I flushed papers and documents down a White House toilet is categorically untrue and simply made up by a reporter in order to get publicity for a mostly fictitious book, unquote. That's not accurate, but the reporter is Maggie Haberman, White House correspondent for The New York Times, who won a Pulitzer Prize for her coverage of the Trump presidency. She wrote, about Trump's periodical document dumps in her upcoming book called Confidence Man. She tweeted about it this morning. Let's bring in CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, uh, Trump isn't just disputing Maggie's reporting today, which I should note has been backed up by other uh, reporters. Uh, He's also disputing other claims of mishandled uh, presidential records, uh, which the National Archives has actually referred to the Justice Department, which seems significant. It is significant. And uh, look, I mean, the, the, the National Archives looked at what they received, the 15 boxes of documents that they received from Mar-a-Lago, and they decided that they thought there was something here to look at, whether there was some violation of federal law. And there's a number of laws that, they could, that, that you could look at. Uh, so they asked, they wanted the Justice Department to take a look. Now, it's quite, the question is, uh, what happens next? It's not clear that the Justice Department is going to actually launch a formal investigation. A lot of these referrals don't end up making it into a a formal investigation. But just the fact that somebody at the archives thought that this is something prosecutors and the FBI should look at is a a big, major step to take. Do we have any idea what the National Archives specifically is concerned about, whether it's documents missing or classified documents that... Well, they're concerned about all of that. They're concerned about whether, exactly, whether there's any violation of the Presidential Records Act, which is kind of a a law that is not really... uh, The the enforcement mechanism is not exactly there for the Justice Department, but there's a number of other laws. There's a law, for instance, that says it's illegal for you to unlawfully destroy or mutilate documents uh, that belong to a public office, and you get uh, up to three years in prison, and you could be disqualified uh, from holding office if you were to be found guilty of that law. So there's a number of laws, including uh, mishandling of classified information, which, of course, uh, if you remember, there was a period when uh, Donald Trump was very concerned about that uh, when Hillary Clinton was (laughs) under investigation. Well, concerned, uh, in quotes, concerned. Right, but we know that he destroyed documents because there's all this reporting about him shredding documents, ripping up documents. Right. Uh, Chief 
political analyst Gloria Borgers with us too. And, and Gloria, Trump said that the process to hand over documents to the National Archives is 15 boxes uh, that were handed over, seized, however you want to call it. He says it's been collaborative right. and without conflict, but I mean... The National Archives has referred this to the Justice Department. Right, because as Evan is saying, they have no idea whether there are classified documents in there, or maybe they do have an idea of what's in there. Look, if he wanted to keep the note from President Obama that Obama sent him on his first day in office and all that, there are ways to do that. You know, you ha- there, there is a process. But this White House, uh, this former White House, knew nothing about process. We know about that. Oh, they President, knew, but they just didn't want to. They did right. It. it was it was his sinecure. He could do it the way, do anything the way he wanted. He could use his personal cell phone instead of using the cell phone at his desk. He could use other people's phones. He could u- use phones that were not secured. I mean, this is the way they operated, and the archives knows this. And where they're going through all these documents, they can they can see what's potentially missing. And, and Evan, what's we sh- not. Evan, we should note that uh, after Maggie Haberman put out her scoop. Right. Uh, on Twitter, and also I think uh, she leaked an excerpt of her upcoming book to Axios. Uh, Jennifer Jacobs, another widely respected uh, journalist who covered uh, covered Trump, she's a senior White House reporter for Bloomberg News, she tweeted, Maggie Haberman's reporting is 100% accurate. Staff did find clumped, torn, shredded papers and fished them out from blocked bathroom toilet and believed it had been the president's doing, sources told me at the time. A, gross. B, like, (laughs) is that illegal? Look, I, it, it, if you read the law, it's plainly illegal. The question is whether the Justice Department, whether Merrick Garland have the appetite to do an investigation like this and to uh, prosecute a former president for it. Look, I mean, there's a number of things that have been referred over there, including, of course, looking at whether the, uh, these fake electors uh, violated federal law. But I, I think, you know, you, I, I'm recalling, uh, you know, a scene from The Matrix where, you know, that's Merrick Garland trying to, you know, sort of figure out right. how to avoid these bullets that are coming at the Justice Department, trying to get them to investigate Can, can, I, can we just all recall when Donald Trump was telling us how difficult it was to flush the toilet? Because there wasn't yeah. enough water in it and that he had to flush his toilet 10 to 15 times. Well, now we understand, well, this may now we understand why he had to flush it 15 yeah. times. But, I mean, why have laws if you exempt... Pre- I mean, I thought the whole point right. of the United States is that no man is above the law, no woman is above the law. Why even have laws if you're not going to apply them to presidents? Well, and why have laws without teeth? I mean, that's the thing. You can have the law, but if there's no punishment for the crime... What is the point? I think now you've got congressional committees who are going to start looking at this because I think, I think the answer to your question is no one ever expected that a president of the United States would actually do this. Right. I mean, I, I think it was sort of out of the realm of normalcy, which it was. Right. And I think now they have to take another look at it and say, well, we have to protect the country against this happening again. And they're scratching their heads and saying, why? Why? Evan Perez, Gloria Borger, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. From a possible war with Russia and Eastern Europe to a war within the Republican Party, we're going to talk to a GOP congressman who has served on the front lines and is now in the political battle for his party's future. Stay with us. In our world lead today, the Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, called Russia's new joint military exercises with Belarus An escalation, not a de-escalation, as the U.S. and NATO allies keep an eye on intelligence that could signal when Russia might invade Ukraine. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is live for us at the Pentagon. Orrin, what are some clues intel officials are looking at? 
Jake, there are a number of different elements that might precede a Russian invasion of Ukraine, if that's the direction that President Vladimir Putin wants to go. The challenge about these is that they're not definitive, and it might be one of these or some combination that Russia uses to essentially prep what would be the battlefield of Ukraine if they decide to invade. For example, one of the key indicators the U.S. is looking for is an increase in cyber attacks against Ukraine. Ukraine is often targeted and has been recently targeted, so it would be an increased level of that, perhaps targeting infrastructure or the government, or simply trying to create chaos amongst the population. Another key indicator would be the movement of Russian battalions that are near Ukraine, tanks, artillery, into firing position. That would be a key military indicator, obviously. Then CNN has previously reported about the possibility of a false flag operation, a carefully manicured and produced video that uh, seems to show a Ukrainian attack against Russia that Russia would then use as an excuse uh, for a war. And then, of course, the U.S. is on the lookout for information warfare, either Russian state media prepping the Russian public for what might be uh, casualties from a war or trying to create protests within Ukraine simply to destabilize the countries. These, Jake, are some of the indications that might be a key to U.S. officials who are watching that Russia and Putin are about to act. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon, thank you so much. Let's bring in Republican Congressman Peter Meyer from Michigan. He's on the House Homeland Security Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee. He also served in the Army Reserves and was deployed to Iraq. Uh, Congressman, good to see you again. So the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, called his counterpart in Belarus today for the first time ever, we're told, to, quote, reduce chances of miscalculation as Russia and Belarus begin these joint military drills. How do you view these joint drills? I mean, these drills are clearly highly provocative. Uh, there's no coincidence that they're both encircling Ukraine from the north through Belarus and then also conducting naval drills uh, throughout the southern Ukrainian uh, maritime border. So I think we've already seen some uh, NOTAM, so notices for airlines in the area that there will be potential for missiles to be fired, which is pretty routine during training exercises. But the fact that these are occurring simultaneously encircling Ukraine is deeply troubling. The, uh, President Biden has approved the, the Pentagon's plan, we're told, to help Americans get out of Ukraine quickly if Russia does invade. The Wall Street Journal's reporting, quote, the troops are not authorized to enter Ukraine and won't evacuate Americans or fly aircraft missions from inside, Ukraine officials said. Instead, the mission would be to provide logistic support to help coordinate the evacuation of Americans from Poland after they arrive there from Kiev and other parts of Ukraine, likely by land and without U.S military support. There are about 30,000 Americans in Ukraine, we're told. Do you think this plan is enough to avoid another catastrophic exit, such as the one that we saw in Afghanistan, if it comes to that? Well, at the very least, the administration is being very clear about the risks, rather than when Afghanistan, where they were still openly projecting the government would last for several months, uh, and it didn't even make it through to the August 31st deadline uh, when the clock was supposed to start. So, you know, there is forewarning here. Uh, I have a friend who is in Ukraine right now who received an email basically uh, laying out the exact same notice that there will not be support for American citizens if you are there, leave. Um, this particular friend is a, a you know, war correspondent, so it's not a surprise uh, that he is there. But I think it's definitely a volatile situation. We don't know what will occur or when. Uh, and you know, we do not want to see Americans caught in the middle. You have accused Biden of not being tough enough in the standoff against Russia. Um, would you have U.S. troops in Ukraine? Uh, you know, apart from 
making sure that we have security at the embassy, which is our traditional force posture. Uh, we should not be deploying United States forces to Ukraine. Uh, we obviously have had a training mission there with oftentimes National Guard or reserve troops uh, who've been training the Ukrainians as we do in many other countries that we partner with. Uh, but this is not a situation where we should have the U.S. military directly involved. However, that does not mean that we should not be doing everything we can to make clear to Vladimir Putin that there will be swift and severe consequences. And I'm a bit disappointed that we have yet to see any strenuous action uh, responding to this provocation, responding to the threatening posture that both the Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian forces are under, but that both the Russian and the Belarusian forces have put on Ukraine. Turning to domestic politics, Congressman, I was just wondering, what, what was your reaction to the Republican National Committee censuring uh, your colleagues, uh, Congressman Adam Kinzinger, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, partly for being on the January 6th committee, uh, which the RNC called, quote, a Democrat-led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in le- legitimate political discourse, unquote. What, what did you think of all that? You know, this was late last week. Uh, it's incredibly unproductive. You know, the motion in general, uh, the language in there, that that legitimate political discourse. I know uh, there have been comments trying to clean that up a little bit, um, and just the fact that that type of verbiage is out there that we cannot recognize the reality that January sixth was a dark day. Uh, it was a violent day. Uh, it was an attempt to prevent the certification of the peaceful transfer of power from one president to the next. Uh, it continues to be deeply disappointing. It, it there. I mean, a lot of Republicans uh, are are pushing that idea, though, and and there's a result. There's this new CNN poll that shows more and more Republicans uh, believe that the January sixth insurrection was okay. Um, Only 15% of Republicans said the storming of the Capitol was not a problem in January 2021. But almost twice that, 27% of Republicans right now think that it was not a problem for democracy. How how do you explain that? And and, and what needs to be done um, to protect democracy here? I'm always a little bit skeptical because you can get tied up in the wording of the polls. You know, we've we've asked folks to to say in their own words, you know, what they think happened. Uh, and there is a sizable minority that you know only sees on social media, you know, videos that support a narrative that the police let everybody in, that it was very peaceful, uh, that it wasn't um, uh, violent at all. Or if there was violence, it was, uh, you know, it started off that it was Antifa or BLM or a false flag. And now the FBI You know, I mean, all of these just circular excuses really, they're dangerous. I mean, we cannot be ignoring that reality. If you minimize, if you whitewash, if you downplay, all you're doing is making it more likely that we see additional political violence if you are unable to simply and swiftly condemn that. And I've had conversations with folks who have told me that there were only six Capitol Police officers on duty that day because they talked to a friend of theirs who talked to a friend of theirs. And even when I say I was there, I saw it. I was in the House chamber. That was not the case. You know, it is a very challenging environment when you have a lot of different groups, and this is true on both sides of the aisle, but when they are just caught up in an echo chamber where there is very little information being presented that contradicts whatever narrative they want to believe. Republican Congressman Peter Meyer from the great state of Michigan, thank you so much for your time today, Sarah. We appreciate it. Thank you. Amid a border crisis, CNN gets a rare inside look at a Texas operation launched to help ease problems. But some Texas border officers say this is all political theater. 
Stay with us. In our national lead, trouble at the border. Complaints piling up for Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott from his own state's law enforcement officers, calling out Abbott's Operation Lone Star, which uses thousands of National Guardsmen on the border to try to help stop migrant crossings, as CNN's Priscilla Alvarez reports from the border for us now. Some of the Guardsmen are calling this poorly executed political theater. This is the Texas-Mexico border where thousands of National Guard soldiers show up every day to patrol for migrants illegally crossing. We have the National Guard as well as the Texas Department of Public Safety, about 10,000 of them all together, who are working day and night. Texas Governor Greg Abbott launched Operation Lone Star last March with the intention to help federal authorities amid an influx of migrants. The operation started with 500 personnel, and within months, it became a mandatory mobilization of more than 10,000 service members. The rapid deployment and the lack of preparedness is fueling frustrations within the Guard. CNN obtained audio from a January town hall hosted by senior commanders for deployed units. I'm currently shy, 46 sets of night vision goggles. There's guys out there that are uh, short for OCIE and they're having to trade out. They've only got five or six toolboxes that are full of old, rusty, and half-missing tools. In the two-hour-long audio, other common complaints reported include living conditions and delayed paychecks for those who put their lives on hold. Abbott billed the mission as protecting the U.S. border, but some guardsmen think he's more concerned with scoring political points ahead of the elections. CNN agreed to shield one soldier's identity, since they're not authorized to speak, and so they could talk candidly. There's really no set mission for us. Um, we don't, like I said, there's guys standing on our points doing nothing, so they don't really see a mission. Um, they just see this as, we're just using as political pawns uh, for an election year. Did you think there was a clear mission when you first got your deployment notice? We weren't really given an end goal on this. The Guard generally doesn't have jurisdiction to arrest migrants. That means that they can only notify Border Patrol to come pick them up. Multiple Guardsmen tell CNN the long hours with nothing to do, poor planning and a lack of mission is contributing to low morale among soldiers. As military people know, like the term uh, hurry up and wait is just the biggest hurry up and wait I was a part of. And there's really no set, hey, we're doing this or hey, Go ahead and do this. It's just we're sitting around doing nothing. Border arrests remain high. In December, U.S. Border Patrol arrested more than 33,000 migrants in the Del Rio sector, up from the previous month, according to the latest available data. Local Sheriff Joe Frank Martinez says the mere presence of authorities is keeping residents of his town safe. If their duty is to, you know, sit on a, at a post, and make sure that nobody comes across, and if somebody comes across to call Border Patrol, well, you know, so be it. That, I think it's needed. But there are serious concerns over the execution of the operation. Abbott's office has defended the state's action, and in a lengthy statement, the Texas Military Department said they're working on improving equipment and living conditions. Back in Del Rio, Sheriff Martinez sees the operation right now as their best option. What do you see as the end goal? You know, I think if, if policy doesn't change, it doesn't end. It continues. 
uh, we'll be like this two or three years down the road. But until policy changes from this administration, we're going to continue to see more of the same. And Jake, we should note that there have been four casualties of service members linked to Operation Lone Star. Two of those were suicides. Two were non-mission related accidental firearm discharges. This according to the Texas Military Department, which is investigating those incidents. But for some of those deploys, deployed, these are unsettling incidents as they wait for when they get to go home. Jake. All right. Priscilla Alvarez at the at the border. Thank you so much for that important reporting. Solid gold for America's and Nathan Chen in men's figure skating. But you wouldn't know it if you're only watching Chinese government media. We're going to go behind China's wall next. Stay with us. And now our Behind China's Wall series in which we go behind the fanfare and the glamour of the Olympic Games. The Chinese government hopes to use the Olympic Games to distract the world from its crackdowns on freedoms and its crimes against humanity and its genocide. American figure skater Nathan Chen electrified the world today with a flawless performance, earning him his first Olympic gold medal. Chen is an American. He is of Chinese descent. But unlike other Chinese Americans, his victory is being ignored and overshadowed by the Chinese government's propagandists and censors. CNN's David Culver joins us now live from Beijing. David, how is Nathan Chen responding to the reaction in China to his victory? Right. So he says he's isolating himself to just focus on competing, didn't even bother checking out social media. But Jake, here's where we're talking about a Chinese American, a gold medal performance. It was incredible. But the domestic audience here want nothing to do with him. Why? He's Team USA. In the stadium, you had a divide on the so-called closed loop side. Folks who are in the Olympic bubble, roaring cheers from athletes and other spectators there. On the other side, you had primarily invited Chinese fans They kept mostly quiet during Chen's performance and state media giving Chen little to no attention at all. Instead, they're focused on a Japanese skater who placed fourth and a Chinese skater who placed ninth. Nathan Chen, the gold medalist, hardly got a mention. And on Chinese social media, the comments really harsh. Some consider Chen a disappointment, others even likening him to a traitor. Jake, it cuts deeply personal for him here. Eileen Gu is a, a Chinese-American freestyle skiing athlete who has chosen to compete in the Olympics for China, as, as is her right. But the coverage in China of her gold medal performance, that was very different, right? Yeah, and that's the thing. Compared with Chen, Gu is a hero. She's the star. Likewise, U.S.-born. Her mom's from China. But the difference? Gu's competing for Team China. She's all over the ads here, carries huge endorsements. State media has made documentaries about the 18-year-old freeski sensation. Both she and Chen, as we've said, Chinese-American athletes, born and raised and trained in the U.S., but treated so differently here, perhaps the biggest factor, one chose to represent China, the other, Team USA. Jake, a disappointment, if not an insult to the host country because of that. Yeah, I thought the games were supposed to be free of politics. But as long as I have you here, David, multiple sources are telling CNN that, that a minor uh, on the gold medal winning Russian Olympic team and the figure skating team event tested positive for a banned substance. The only minor member of the team is 15-year-old star Kamila Valieva. Uh, we should also point out that the team is not competing under the Russian flag. It's not allowed to because of the doping controversies in previous Olympics. Uh, what, what are you learning about this case? Yeah, here we are, yet another Olympics, Jake, yet another uh, time where you've got swirling questions over Russian athletes suspected 
a use of banned substances. And as it is, Russian athletes, as you point out, they're unable to compete under their flag or anthem because of the prior punishment for state-sponsored doping. So they now compete under the ROC, or Russian Olympic Committee. The minor on the team, as you mentioned, Camila Balieva, is the biggest star in skating. She already has set nine world records. On Monday, she made history, becoming the first woman to land a quad at the Games. Now, the Russians, they won gold, but the medal ceremony got delayed Tuesday because of what the IOC said was a legal issue. CNN sourcing pointing to a positive drug test. If these doping allegations are true, it's not clear what exactly is going to happen, Jake, but of course, folks watching it very closely. Almost as if the Russians don't take the punishment seriously if the punishment isn't real. CNN's David Culver in Beijing. Thank you so much. They've been working nine to five at Dollywood. And now Dolly Parton is giving them a really awesome bonus. Stay with us. In our pop culture lead today, working nine to five is paying off for employees of Dolly Parton's Dollywood theme park. The legendary country singer is now offering money to all 11,000 park workers if they decide to pursue a higher education. This starts at the end of February. The money would cover everything, tuition, books, room and board. The park's parent company made the announcement following in the footsteps of Target and Walmart, which started tuition assistance programs last year. It looks as though this whole trend is a whole new way to make a living. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN or listen to our podcast if you miss an episode. Our coverage continues now with Jim Acosta filling in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.